In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis from all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the Gold Dome. And today we're joined by the AJC Washington correspondent, Tamar Hallerman. Tamar, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're here to talk about, say it with me now, Battleground Georgia, because over the last couple of days we had four presidential candidates in Georgia at one time blink and you can almost think it's Manchester, almost, or, or Des Moines or something like that. Not quite yet, but it's more attention than we've gotten in a, in a long time, especially in one day here in Georgia. Not only that, but but four Bs, Cory Booker, Pete Buttigieg, Joe Biden, Beto O'Rourke, all the Bs converged on Atlanta. They can, The killer Bs converged on <laughs> uh, Let's talk about, let's, before we go into their visits, let's talk about why they are converging on Atlanta. Um, and I think one of the main reasons why is is November when Stacey Abrams came within about fifty five thousand votes of of defeating Governor Kemp, and Democrats forced two statewide races into overtime. And of course, you had that slate of suburban sweeps all through North Metro Atlanta, including Lucy McMath's upset victory over Karen Handel. Exactly. And, you know, last year in the lead up to the election, Stacey Abrams was already very much kind of a, a national name. And you saw a lot of these presidential contenders, even some who hadn't quite yet announced, but were clearly heading in that direction, coming down to campaign for Stacey and, um, you know, rub elbows, take photos. Um, and, and folks have been coming down here, uh, well, down there, I'm in D.C., coming down to Georgia quite a bit since then. You know, we, we've seen quite a few candidates go down to, to Plains to meet with, with President Carter. And um, just very different from what we've seen in the past, where a lot of candidates really treated Georgia and Atlanta specifically like an ATM. Come in for the fundraiser, come out, and then spend all your, all your real time in South Carolina, New Hampshire, Ohio. Ohio, I mean, Iowa. <laughs> And we really started to see this shift um, last presidential cycle with the what we like to call the SEC primary. That's what that's what now Governor Kemp called it when he was Secretary of State. He and a bunch of other Southern states got together and said, "Let's have a primary the same day," and that was right after South Carolina's final primary. It was uh, very early in the cycle, and it it attracted a lot more presidential attention than we were used to as well. Most of it, though, came there was there was a big red state convention that Eric Erickson organized where we had a lot of Republican presidential candidates. But the brunt of the the bulk of the attention came just before um, just before that the, the primary vote. This time around, though, we're a year and a half out. We've already had 
13, 14, 15 or so visits from, from like top tier candidates. Yeah. And, and somebody like Beto O'Rourke waited until he was in Georgia to release his, his voting rights platform. Um, you wrote about that, Greg, talk to me about kind of what, what notes he was trying to hit there and how much he was kind of, um, you know, talking overlapping with what we've heard with, uh, from Stacey Abrams. Yeah, it's funny because uh, just about every candidate that we've heard, not just those four, but every candidate who comes in, it's almost like they it's a standard stump speech line for them in Georgia to praise Stacey Abrams. Um, they, uh, many of them have met with her. Many of them have dined with her. Uh, she says that she asks each of these candidates two questions. One, how they will compete in Georgia, and two, what is their plan to combat voter suppression? And we heard Representative, uh, former Congressman Beto O'Rourke's plan, it was at a very small town hall meeting in downtown Atlanta under Old Lady Gang, which is a, a great soul food restaurant. And um, he unveiled it. It was uh, essentially, he wants to register 50 million more voters by 2024. He wants to abolish voter ID. He wants to make it impossible or much harder for, for so-called voters purges, like voter cancellations close to elections. Uh, he wants to make it easier to automatically register to vote. And the mo- I think one of the most interesting things about the plan had very little to do with voting rights, even though it was under the auspices of voting rights. But he's calling for term limits, congressional term limits, and term limits for Supreme Court justices. Yeah, and, and we saw several candidates um, who were down in Atlanta this week set aside time to, to meet with Stacey Abrams while we were there. Pete, Pete Buttigieg did that. Beto O'Rourke did that. Um, and she's kind of said, kind of, she's willing to meet with anybody who's running for president. She hasn't declared aside yet. She obviously hasn't declared her own plans about whether she um, wants to enter the race. She's given herself until the fall to do that. Um, but in the meantime, it seems like she she very much is enjoying what what you call her her queen maker status, Greg, in in Georgia politics. Yeah, she hasn't endorsed anyone yet. Um, I doubt she will do so anytime remotely soon, and that kind of reflects. The rest of Georgia politics, very few, very few local officials and elected officials and, and even grassroots leaders have endorsed. But there's a few exceptions. We started seeing some of them um, over, over the last couple of days. Um, Pete Buttigieg attracted a few endorsements. Matthew Wilson, a state representative from the Brookhaven area, endorsed him. So did Atlanta City Councilman Amir Faroki. Uh, so the two of them were at some of his events. I was at a, a Buttigieg fundraiser early on Thursday morning where I saw uh, him kind of give his his behind the scenes spiel, which which was basically talking about how um, he worries that Trump will win if you have another, basically another status quo candidate and that you have to be more more liberal, more progressive in order to really energize your supporters. So we're starting to see some people move off the sidelines. What I really, what was really interesting is shortly after that Buttigieg fundraiser, I went to a Joe Biden fundraiser at the home of, of a very prominent Democratic donor, um, Mac Wilborn, who's also a, a fast uh, airport concessionaire. So he's, 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 he lives in Ansley Park in this beautiful mansion. And um, it was packed with people, hundreds of people. They basically all maxed out, I was told. Um, so, so we were talking $2,600 um, plus for each of them to just be in the room. And, and I saw a slew of notable Georgia Democratic officials. I mean, uh, these weren't just donors and people behind the scenes. I saw former Governor Roy Barnes, um, Teresa Tomlinson, the, the, the ex-Columbus mayor who's running for U.S. Senate. I saw Stacey Evans, who ran for governor last year against Abrams and lost in the primary. I saw uh, 
uh, Kevin Abel and Bobby Capel, two six district candidates. There's a lot of organizers and activists and operatives and just donors. And, and it was interesting because it was a coalition. There was a lot of those old timer Democrats I was talking about, and also just young, uh, up and coming candidates, African-Americans, uh, uh, white Democrats, just, just a coalition that basically the coalition that Joe Biden's trying to build. And he spoke for about 30 minutes hit on why he's running for president and talked a little bit about why he's worried. He tried not to take too many shots at, at Donald Trump, but did, <laughs> took a few, but also talked about why he's worried that if the Democrat party cannot get together, there will be basically chaos come November, 2020. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see how many of those people ultimately end up you know, endorsing him at, at the end of the day. I think a lot of folks are kind of waiting to see how at least these first few Democratic debates are going to shake out. And I think you're going to see a lot of candidates exit the race if, if maybe they can't make it onto the stage or if there's some poor performances. And maybe we'll start seeing some action later this year, or early early next year. And it'll be curious to see how many of them coalesce around, around Biden, especially um, given that he is trying to appeal to that more centrist track, which kind of goes against, um, you know, the, the Abrams theory and how she was running for, for governor last year. Mm-hmm. With the exception of Teresa Tomlinson, who who really, you know, as a Senate candidate, doesn't stand much to gain by endorsing anyone this early. With the exception of her, I, I think that most of those officials I just said uh, were in that room will probably end up uh, formally endorsing him in some form or fashion. And and um, for the record, Kevin Abel and, and Bobby Capel already have. Um, but they're not, you know, elected officials. They were they were trying to be, but they're not. Uh, but they're still helping raise money and 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 really promote his candidacy. And and he made a big news announcement later on that night when we were at the 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 Democratic National Democratic Party's Iowa Vote Gala. Um, he spoke fairly early in the program, and he immediately said, "I want to get this out of the way. I, I have something very important to say." And he went on to and hasn't really played much in Georgia. I mean, it's certainly been part of the news, but in the national realm, this was a, this was a major part of his campaign. He had come out uh, early in the week. His campaign had confirmed that he supported something called the Hyde Amendment, which essentially restricts federal funds from being used to um, uh, fund abortion providers and, and basically fund, fund abortions. And he came out and said, in light of everything that's happening in places like Georgia and others, where there, where there, where state legislatures and governors are signing heartbeat anti-abortion measures and new restrictions, that he can no longer um, support the Hyde Amendment. He now opposes it, so he reversed course. That was a big move because pretty much everyone else in the 2020 Democratic field up, had, had opposed the Hyde Amendment. So this was an easy contrast they could make between them and him. And what was really amazing is that even the day before on. On Wednesday, he had a lot of his surrogates going up on on cable TV to talk about why he supported the Hyde Amendment. So it really was a a huge shift. But I also think it's worth noting, and and we noted this in in today's Morning Jolt, is that a lot of these members of Congress um, that are running for um, that are running for president right now, they have voted for the Hyde Amendment as well. This is language that has been tucked into every federal spending bill, more or less, for the last. God, decades, definitely years. Um, So if they voted for a government spending package that dealt with everything from foreign aid to funding for the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, there was probably language in there, you know, supporting the Hyde Amendment. So it's worth noting, you know, these are huge packages that often contain billions of dollars worth of spending. So when they do say they, they oppose it, 
just know that a lot of them, probably most of them have voted for it. Oh yeah, uh, certainly. Um, th- there was a lot of uh, accusations of hypo- hypocrisy and and flip flopping, and really, when it boils down to this, is look, it's it's June of of 2019, so you know he's trying to get a what could be a, a major wedge issue out of the way really early, and and it's this is a bad comparison, but I'm still going to make it. It's some somewhat the same in in the Georgia re- Republican race for governor. How all five candidates came out. Well, four of the five candidates came out in support of religious liberty in some form or fashion. Even Clay Tippins, who didn't say he would, he did not sign the oath to to support religious liberty, said he would support he would still support a version of the bill. And that was because they all knew that the if you didn't support religious liberty, which was a big uh, a big priority for a significant portion of the Republican electorate in Georgia, it would just be it would be. be become the dominant issue. And I think for Biden, he knew that you had a string of candidates, including Beto O'Rourke, who who just the day earlier had said it was a terrible decision. He didn't understand why 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 Joe Biden could support the high demand. So it was definitely going to be something that was going to be used to pummel him relentlessly between now and you know next year's primaries. And the fourth candidate who is Crisscrossing um, Atlanta is a familiar one because Senator Cory Booker has been here um, pretty early and often. As you mentioned, he was one of those candidates that endorsed Stacey Abrams last year. He made he's one of the three candidates who made the pilgrimage down to Plains to to meet with Jimmy Carter, and he gave a speech at the African American Leadership Summit where he talked about voting rights. He talked about uh, energizing what he called um, the forgotten parts of the electorate. He's, he said that it's up to Democrats to engage and to register and to activate people who usually skip not just uh, you know your average vote, but also presidential votes. Yeah. And, and Booker is a candidate maybe more than the rest of the entire Democratic field so far. We've really seen him spend quite a bit of time campaigning in the South already. Um, the two of us interviewed him, I think it was back in May. Really mm-hmm. recently, yeah, when he came down and he mentioned, you know, he talks about his ties to Metro Atlanta. His his mother, I believe, grew up in Dunwoody or somewhere yeah. somewhere about. And, and he talks about feeling a real kinship for the, the region. And, and it's clear that he sees the South as, as a key part of his strategy. To, to he, make he was it. very upfront about that. He said, look, traditionally, uh, uh, Democratic candidates have ignored the South, neglected the South. I mean, you can't say that about Bill, Bill Clinton, but... But, you know, in, in some states have been have, have, like Georgia have not been heavily trafficked by these candidates, especially after primaries. Uh, he's saying, I'm going to do the opposite. That all, by the way, all of this remains to be seen, because while a lot of these candidates talk a good game, what Nakima Williams and other Georgia operatives and Nakima, of course, the chairwoman of, of the state Democratic Party, what they've noted is they'll believe it when they see it. They'll believe it when the rubber hits meets the road and they start seeing campaign offices open, staffers getting hired, um, and, and that sort of ground game going. Because candidates can visit, raise some cash, and, and, and even hold rallies, which is more than they've done in past cycles. But what we'll really know is when a candidate is competing in Georgia is when they start opening those offices and really investing a lot of money in the state. And Tamar, while we were dealing with all those presidential candidates, you were dealing with a president of your own who, in a somewhat surprise, you know, not really, we knew he was going to sign it, but in a, in a sort of stealth move, right before he got off Air Force One to commemorate 
the uh, 75th anniversary of D-Day, he signed into law legislation that you've been writing about for, I don't know, eight months now. <laughs> <laughs> the um, Hurricane Michael relief bill uh, that was amounted to about $19 billion for overall disaster relief and $3 billion or so that will go to, to those farmers and, and, other, and other South Georgia residents who were devastated by the hurricane. Yeah, his signature brings an end to this insane political saga. I have not seen anything like this in my years covering Capitol Hill. A fight over an issue that everyone agreed was a priority and that was not that hard to solve. And yet, you're right, they were fighting about it for almost eight months. Um, you know, the president signed it pretty quickly after you know the House passed this $19 billion emergency aid bill on Monday. Um, he signed it on Air Force One right after um, celebrating in Normandy the 75th anniversary of D-Day. He, he tweeted out how happy he was to finally deliver aid to farmers. Um, you know, and one thing he didn't mention, though, is, is how, you know, his role in, in this fight. You talk to Democrats and they say the reason it took so long was because of him, because he insisted he didn't want to give any more money to Puerto Rico beyond about $600 million in emergency food stamp money. Um, in the end, they managed to get quite a few concessions from the president. They got an extra $300 million. And Republicans will say, no, 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 no. Democrats were super inflexible throughout all of this. They could have given Puerto Rico money right at the beginning. The president was willing to give them something, and they, they fought it out on that and on border security at the end. Um, but a pretty remarkable fight overall. Um, you know, the, the longest running disaster aid fight I ever covered was over Hurricane Sandy money back in 2012. This was when Barack Obama was in power and, you know, the Tea Party movement helped Republicans take over the House and there was a real concern about government spending and government waste. And, and that took about two, three months. So this was pretty remarkable that it took eight. Um, so now that the president signed it, this begins the process of getting federal money down into people's pockets. Um, it'll still take weeks, if not months, for that to happen. The money goes through federal agencies now. They've got to craft regulations and rulemakings and federal formulas. Um, but, but now, finally, the money is freed up. Surprise. Even federal aid in Washington now is being politicized. And, and, and really, and you, and you did some fantastic um, journalism covering how those farmers are, are, are feeling the, the, the brunt of this because, and remember, these are mostly Republican um, uh, voters too, but the, these farmers were have been waiting for months. They've missed planting seasons. Uh, and it's not just farmers, it's bankers, it's supply companies, it's tractor salesmen, it's seed suppliers. It's a whole slew of industries that, that trickle down from Georgia's biggest business, which is agriculture. And, uh, you know, the, a lot of the damage we've seen, a lot of a lot of the trees have been chopped up, and there's no, you know, the roads have been repaired, and infrastructure is, is starting to be repaired. But you know, you can't, you cannot repair a pecan grove that it, that that took decades to grow, that was just, you know, overturned and destroyed in one fell swoop. You cannot repair that. You can't undo that damage in in just a, a few months. So those are the people who need this aid. And, you know, as you mentioned, this was this was a top priority for for Georgia's Republican delegation. So um, and Democratic, but the, the Georgia's Republican majority delegation. And they must have been pretty frustrated that despite their clout in Congress and despite their ties with President Trump and 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 despite their experience on the Hill, they couldn't get this done in less than eight months. Exactly. And, you know, especially David Perdue, who, who really was in the middle of all of this, who thought 
back in February, he managed to, to extract a key concession from his ally, President Trump, to give at least some money to Puerto Rico for their food stamp program, which was running out of money. He thought after he got that, that, that this was in the bag. Um, you know, and all of a sudden this, this much larger fight starts playing out between Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi and the president. And I think a lot of people were so frustrated in Georgia because they felt, no, we have good arguments. Everyone agrees with us. Trump agreed to more money. Why can't we do anything about this? And everyone was forced to just kind of wait for all of it to, to play out. And in the end, Purdue did manage to get, you know, to help extract another concession from the president. You know, on, on Capitol Hill, finally, right before the Memorial Day recess, there was a bipartisan agreement. There, there had been a last minute request from the White House to add border control money um, to, to deal with the humanitarian crisis to this, this spending bill. And it was creating a ton of problems. So in the end, they all kind of agreed to, to push that border security fight to another day. Let's just deal with hurricane relief. And he needed to get Trump on board. So Purdue called the, the president and apparently there were House Freedom Caucus people in the room with Trump telling him not to not to take Purdue up on the offer. And, and the president did agree to do it. Um, so big victory for Purdue. But one interesting thing we saw is, is that in his press release and in all his messaging since he he really framed it as, as more, um, you know, President Trump's doing. Trump is the one who delivered this this victory for um for Georgia. So a lot of uh, foreshadowing of what's to come in the Senate race. You, oh, al yeah. you also saw, you know, you've seen Teresa Tomlinson, his only kind of major stated opponent at the moment, um, knocking him relentlessly for this, saying, if you have so much clout with the president, so much clout in the Senate, um, why didn't why didn't you get this done faster? Eight months is not enough. Like you said, Greg, a lot of folks were forced to sit this season out. Some of the farmers I talked to had to mortgage off pieces of their land in order to secure loans to, um, you know, secure enough money to plant for this upcoming season. There are others, you know, th there's fears that others would leave farming altogether. So for a lot of folks, it's kind of too little, too late in rural Georgia. Yeah, I just went down to uh, Doe Run. And it's spelled Doe Run, but apparently it's pronounced Doe Run. And I've been to a lot of places in Georgia, but never never there before. And um, that's where Governor Kemp and Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue and Senator David Perdue and m several members of Georgia's congressional delegation, as, along with Ag Commissioner Gary Black, all went to kind of – it was weird. It was, it was kind of um, – it was part victory lap, part mea culpa, and part laying out the challenges ahead. And people talk very frankly, you know, and there, there, it wasn't as um, Sanford Bishop, a Democratic House member, was also there. So it was it was bipartisan and uh, there was no partisan finger pointing. It was more of basically a, almost apologetic. Uh, David Perdue called it embarrassing that it took this long. He said he, he wanted to apologize on behalf of his chamber uh, and Austin Scott. And we've written a lot about him in, this, in his process, but he. He represents a, a giant swath of South Georgia, and he has been – he has not really held anything back along this process. He has vented at Trump officials, at Democrats and Republicans um, very openly, and you know he, he was – people were talking about him basically saying thank you for, for keeping up such pressure and all the text messages and, and the angry conversations because he got pretty heated. Uh, when he spoke, though, he kind of talked mournfully. He was very grateful that this finally passed, but he said, thank goodness it wasn't worse. He was talking about farmers who could have committed suicide. I mean, when you talk about people who have 
who have, who watch a lifetime of work just go up just like that, you know, just with, with the storm's trail, um, you know, it, it has devastating consequences. And he said, I asked him about it afterwards. What, you know, I, I said, I get that this is an emotional issue for you, but tell us, tell us a little bit more about what, what, what it means to you that this finally passed. He said, listen, I go to, I go to church with these people. I, I I see them in the grocery store. These are the biggest patriots you'll ever meet. These are American farmers. He views them like he views American soldiers, he said. Um, and when he, he feels like his district has always been there for other areas that need disaster relief. And when his area needed relief and, and his constituents were asking for it, and he said, believe me, they wouldn't be asking for help if they didn't need it. And when they were asking for help, it took eight months. It took everything. It almost took, you know, it took moving heaven and earth basically uh, in Washington to get this deal done. And he, he's still flabbergasted and a little bit um, angry about it. Yeah. And, and Austin Scott really was the only Republican that at least I was aware of to be so, you know, to, to vocally kind of put some blame on the administration in all of this fight. You know, we, we've written plenty, you and I, Greg, over the last few years about how Republicans are so scared to, to do anything to criticize the president, given his iron grip on the base. Um, and, and so it was pretty remarkable to see because, you know, let's remind folks, Hurricane Michael was not the only natural disaster covered by this bill. California wildfires, Midwestern flooding, tornadoes in, in West Georgia and, and Alabama, um, you know, mudslides, volcano, volcanic eruptions in Hawaii. This this bill really was for everyone. So you'd think there would be more of a push, no matter what your your background was, to get this done and to get any obstacles out of the way. So it really was remarkable that that Austin Scott was the only one there. Um, and and I did see some lingering bitterness as I was interviewing folks on Capitol Hill throughout this fight. Um, you know, lingering bitterness from the Hurricane Sandy fight back in 2012. There were a lot of people from New York, New Jersey, the area that was really hard hit, who, who were saying at the time, you know, if, if we were the South, that this bill would have passed immediately. If we were from Republican you know, red states, that this bill would have passed immediately. Well, I was hearing the exact same things this time from Republicans in Georgia saying, well, if we were from a blue state, this would have passed immediately. And, and people have a long memory on Capitol Hill in terms of who voted for, for bills like this. One thing I did hear, you know, talking to members from New York this time around is some of them said, you know, I don't want to do to people in the South and the West what, what folks did to us back in 2012. So, mm -hmm. so I'm going to vote for this bill. Um, one thing I'm wondering after this whole nasty saga is whether lawmakers will do anything to change the process for the next time there's going to be a natural disaster because there's going to be plenty. David Perdue has come out with a few proposals of his own. I highly doubt any of them are, are going to be taken up just because it's so hard to get anything done on the Hill. And anything that takes away power from any group of people and hands it to somebody else is going to be met with resistance. Mm -hmm. it, it's all about turf battles. So I can see this playing out over and over and over again, depending on where these disasters hit. You're right. Um, and and that, that came up at this event too, where Austin Scott also talked about some general ideas, nothing concrete, but some general ideas. But what we do know, and I know we focus a lot about the, the, the frustration and anger over this taking so long, but the other, the other word that we can use for this was gratitude from these, from these farmers. I mean, uh, almost to there were certainly people who were mad it took so long as well but almost to to a person um they also said thank goodness you know let's put this behind us thank goodness at least we can now think that hopefully within the next weeks or months 
the spigots will start flowing. I want to read you a quote from Dick Miner. He's an America's um, vegetable fruit farmer, and that industry suffered some a particularly bad damage. Um, and he was he was talking about what Georgians will do, what those South Georgia farmers will do when they receive the money. He said, we were not going to have it long. It goes into our accounts and it will be farmed out to banks, landlords, seed sales, tractors. It will spur the rural economy. He said, I talked to a farmer who said it's really going to affect us right down to the collection plate at the church. It really will. So he's, he, that, 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 that gives you a summation of how important this is to that, that sector of the economy. Yeah. And it, it's worth noting, you know, you'll talk to somebody like agriculture commissioner, Gary Black and folks who, who work in the agriculture space. And they talk a lot about the, the hard time farmers have had over the last couple of years, not only um, talking about this disaster fight and hurricane Michael, which really did wipe out huge chunks of Southwest Georgia, but also, you know, the tariff fights with, especially with China have really, hit especially pecan farmers in, in the U.S. and a lot of different commodities. You know, you've had low commodity prices worldwide over the last few years. Cotton folks can talk about that. Um, and so it's really been kind of a triple whammy for folks. So, you know, this money does make a difference, they say. So I guess we'll wait and see how much we, we get. Uh, we really don't know how much of that $19 billion is going to end up in the pockets of, of, uh, of Georgians. It's still, like I mentioned, has to filter through these federal agencies. And they're the ones who are going to make all these formulas to determine, okay, this part of the country needs this much money. If you farm this type of crop, you're going to get X amount. So it, it might take us months or, or even a year or two to really know how much of that $19 billion ends up in Georgia. Well, we'll be watching it. Tamara, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. See you soon. Well, that's all for this week's edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Head to AJC.com forward slash politics to subscribe to Politically Georgia. You'll get access to our daily newsletter, along with all of our stories and updates on all things Georgia politics. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate us. It really means a lot to us when you do. And as always, thank you for listening. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.